Hard to sit down on a song like that. When you know that every breath you have comes from God. Kind of scared to give a little bit of it back to him in praise. I just felt like, you know what? He deserves it. Amen. God deserves our praise. You got up this morning, didn't you? Kind of wandered into breakfast and wandered into the bathroom and got all spruced up. Boy, you guys look good. I like to see you really, really get fixed up. Looking good. Why do we do all these things? Because Sunday is the day to come to church and lift up Jesus Christ and let him know we love him. Let's get in our Bibles today as we look to Philippians chapter 1 again, beginning with verse 19. You can follow along on the screen, but I hope you can keep your Bibles open if you got one. And Let's stand together. Paul writes, for this, or I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, living and dying, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith and your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Amen. Lord, we just turn this part of the service over to you as we have the whole service. But I ask that you would speak, send the Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts, so that we, Lord, can praise you and lift you up and be better Christians. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're slowly going through the book of Philippians. I think this is number eight. And we're not even through the first chapter. At the rate we're going, it's going to be 2020 before we finish up. But it's okay. Whoever said you have to race through a book? race through the Bible. But we talked about his letter introduction, and then Paul begins the body of the letter last week by writing to his Philippian friends about his personal situation. So you do the greeting and the thanksgiving and the prayer. That's the introduction, and then the formal way of doing a letter is to tell about yourself. And so he started the body of the letter by telling about himself. What's his present situation? Well, his present situation was he was in chains and he was in prison. And they knew that. But Paul took that and turned it around and said, in the midst of my affliction, we're seeing the gospel advance. So he started praising God for what he was doing presently because he was chained to these big elite Roman guards of the imperial legion and since they were chained him all day, he would tell them about Jesus Christ. And some of them got saved. And so you got these big burly guards going around saving other big burly guards. And pretty soon Rome is being transformed by the power of the gospel because it, his chains wouldn't keep him down. It couldn't keep the gospel down, folks. You can do what you want to the Christian, but you can't keep the gospel down. Jesus comes out. If you're awake, Jesus comes out. 
All right, so today's passage, he switches from the present tense, I'm in chains in prison, to what he's looking for in the future. He didn't know initially what God's will was for his future, but as he debated it in this letter, and we get to kind of look in at his thought process as he debates it back and forth, God's will becomes clear. He wrote here in the first person, giving his readers insight into the debate that's going on in his mind. I I would like to stay for this reason, but I'd like to go for that reason. So in this section, he made some confident statements about his future. And the first thing Paul stated was, number one, and you got a spot on your bulletin if you want to fill in and write some notes in between. That whole page there is for you. He said, God is going to take care of me. This is my paraphrase of what's going on in verses 19 and 20. God is going to take care of me, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For I know that this being in prison and, and my trial that's coming up before Caesar, the emperor, will turn out for my deliverance. God is going to take care of me. He is going to deliver me. This sentence is a direct quote from Job thirteen sixteen. Job had just stated in the sentence before, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Amen? And then he comes back and says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. And that is exactly what Paul is quoting here from the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament. So in our English translation, the word salvation, it means to us today to get saved from your sins. So a lot of the translations have changed that word to deliverance, which is what I read to you. Changing that, that thought process of, of Job's to a word that we're more used to. Um, and it's change of deliverance because Paul was already saved from sin and didn't need that kind of salvation. But Paul did need deliverance from prison and from the chains and from the ministry that he wanted to do. He couldn't do because he was bound up in one location. He wanted to visit those churches again. So Paul identified with the situation of Job by this quote. Remember, because of his affliction, Job's friends showed up. They were silent for seven days. Those were the good days. And then they opened their mouth and began to say, Job, what did you do? You must have sinned. The only reason God is allowing these things to punish you is because you sinned. And they don't know about that contest that that is written about between you know, this conversation that God has with Satan up in heaven, and, and you know, and I don't understand all that, but that was what's going on, and he said, consider my servant Job, and, and Satan said, oh, you've got him all hedged around with a hedge of protection, and there's no way I can get to him, and God says, okay, I'll remove that protection. And so Job became kind of a guinea pig in that story. Between the forces of good and evil, and he held true. But while he was there, his friends showed up. He's, he's, everything's been taken from him. His family's killed. His, his wealth is gone, and he's got boils, and he's out on the ash heap, and his wife shows up and says, yeah, Job, just curse God and die. She was a great comforter. His friends were a better comforter. They showed up and said, you must ascend. So Job is arguing, and in most of the whole middle of Job is this argument from his friends back to Job and Job back to his friends about how he knows he did not sin. And they say, yes, you did. So he says, though he slay me, yet I'm going to keep following him. I'm going to trust him. He says, and I know God's going to be my salvation. So Job is declaring his innocence. And stated he would be vindicated by God. And Paul had faced affliction and attacks. And he is now in prison for something he did not do. Except, yeah, he did. He preached the gospel of Jesus. If that was a crime, he did it. And now that he is in prison, some of his 
friends, so-called, even his preacher friends, we talked about last week, they turned on him and said, well, if he's in prison, he can't be a real disciple or a Christian. And we're going to get into the honor-shame thing in a little bit. So he's attacked by other preachers. And so he looked forward to vindication and restoration by God. So he's choosing this passage to say, like Job, I'm going to be vindicated. God's going to be my deliverance. I'm going to get out of this mess. Amen. You ever feel like you need to get out of your mess? Well, how will this deliverance happen? Very, very interesting. There's a theme that's going on here. I hope you're picking it up in Philippians. For I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. Did you get that? So the deliverance was going to happen through the prayers of the Philippian Christians. Again, I want to emphasize the importance of us Christians praying for other Christians by name. I still hope you have your little purple sheet. I've been praying it through this week. And every day, it seems like God puts somebody different in my heart. And I pray for them using that prayer. Lord, I just pray that Sam will increase in knowledge still more and more and love, and discernment. Amen. Fruits of righteousness growing out of his life. You know, that's what I've been praying for people in our church by name. So important. The prayers of other Christians. We need to pray for Christians when they are sick. We do real good at that. But we also need to pray for Christians when they are healthy. If you pray ahead of time for your Christian friends, maybe then when the temptation comes, they won't fall. Maybe when the trials come, they'll, they'll stand strong. Maybe if we're praying for each other, we will get the strength to get through the situations of life. And we cannot neglect to pray. I need your prayers. You need our prayers. We need to pray for each other, Christians. We got a world out there that's falling apart. The enemy attacks all of us, and all of us need God's help to grow spiritually. We need to develop a method and a habit of praying for each other. Good news, in a couple of weeks, the new directory should be out. Putting in the final touches, you can start praying through that directory. Interesting quote when I was studying this week. William Barclay wrote this in his commentary. And I don't know, this is pretty strong. He said, we cannot call a man a friend unless we pray for him. Is she really your friend if you don't pray for her? Because if they're really your friend, he is saying, you would want what was best for them. And you'd be willing to pour down any uh, five minutes of prayer or ten minutes a week or whatever it is that you would put into that friendship. And you would pray for your friend because you want them to grow in Jesus. And you want them to stay strong. And you want them to resist temptation, right? So we pray for sick people, and we pray for the sinner, but what about praying for the Christian to stay strong? You don't know what they're going to face this week. They may need your prayer. And that missionary you've been assigned to pray for, or that that, whatever it is, whatever God lays on their heart, and you wake up at 3 a.m., and there's a thought, there's somebody that I need to pray for, and it comes to your mind, you better pray. Well, they're a Christian. They're doing all right. No, there's too many stories of people who at that exact same time were going through a serious problem, and they had a Christian praying for them. Praise God. So Paul's deliverance came through their prayers, but we go on, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul's deliverance would also happen through the supply or the power of the Spirit of Jesus. God would, uh, Paul was convinced that God would work through the prayers of his Christian friends to do what? Energize the Spirit. On his behalf. <laughs> See, Paul's convinced that God will work through the prayers of his friends, energize the Spirit's power on his behalf to set him free from his chains so he could go on 
worshiping and working and ministering for the Lord, he's got a fourth minute missionary journey he wants to do, including a trip to Spain. How important then is intercessory prayer? It turns the Holy Spirit loose to encourage, help, and deliver our friends. It, it's like two buckets attached to one rope at the same well. <laughs> As our prayers are going up, the Spirit's coming down. Amen. Fill it up. Let's keep this thing going. Keep it cycling. I want God's power. I need somebody praying. You need God's power. You need somebody praying. Let's pray for each other. And it takes us off the selfish praying of having to pray for ourselves all the time. Because if I got 20 people praying for me, and you've got 15 people praying for you, and you got somebody else that's 25 praying for them, I don't care when the power of God is coming on you because the prayers are going up. That's kind of biblical, isn't it? So Paul was excited. I get excited once in a while, don't I? Can you catch Paul's excitement here? When the Holy Spirit began to work on his behalf, Paul went on and says, I have eager expectation and hope. (laughs) He began to feel this. He's writing this letter, and he's feeling the prayers, and he's feeling the Spirit, and he's writing, and he said, I've got some expectation. I've got some hope now. Because God is going to work in my behalf. Now, earnest expectation is a very strong Greek word coupled here with hope. It's one word, earnest expectation. It's very strong. It kind of gives me the idea that you know, expecting so much that you're up on tiptoe. You ever been there? You know, when you're little and you go to the window and you get on tiptoe to peek out to see grandma's coming. Earnest expectation. God's coming. He's going to work on my behalf. The church is praying. The Holy Spirit's moving. Something's about to happen. These chains are going to fall off. I'm going to walk out of this prison. Amen. See, standing on tiptoe to see what God is going to do to deliver him through the power of the Holy Spirit as a direct answer to their prayers. How else was God going to take care of Paul? The Spirit would give Paul boldness. Instead of shame, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So we want to talk about boldness and shame. He's praying and his people are praying that when Paul goes to stand before this Caesar, after waiting two, two years in prison... That God will give him boldness. That God would take away any dishonor. Spiritual boldness was so that Paul could magnify Christ and do it in front of the Roman Empire. Why not? Because he's the head guy, and if he would get saved, guess what? It would affect the whole world. Roman Empire. People would stop worshiping the emperor and start worshiping Almighty God. That would be a change, wouldn't it? So, Lord, I just want to get in front of him and and tell about Jesus. But there is also this matter of Paul feeling ashamed. Our modern Western culture doesn't understand the Greco-Roman idea of public honor or shame. Some Americans today, they like to brag about their prison experiences and their shameful deeds. It's a rite of passage. It's a rite of honor. But in his culture... His arrest and detention in chains was a public dishonor and a disgrace that was to be avoided at all costs. And Paul knew others thought of him in humiliating terms and were ashamed of him as being a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of what he had not so much done, but he had been arrested. And he was put in chains. And he was on trial. That's embarrassing. He must not be a real Christian or God would have set him free from all that. So they were grumping and complaining. That was kind of last week's. They caused a lot of aggravation. And Paul said, it doesn't matter to me as long as they preach Christ. They can make fun of me. They can disparage me. They can, anyway. 
But Paul is confident that because of their prayers of the Christians and the presence of the Holy Spirit, he's going to be able to stand in Caesar's court and declare the real reason for his arrest, which was his relationship with Jesus Christ. And without shame, Paul was going to magnify Jesus, even if it meant his life or his death. And that's the way he ends that verse. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm going to stand in front of him, and I'm going to preach Jesus to him and tell him that's the reason why they put me in chains. And the emperor is either going to say, off with his head or feed him to the lions or set this heretic free. (laughs) And get him out of here because he's driving me nuts. Almost you persuade me to be a Christian, you know. So Paul was ready to say, whether I live or die, my life will belong to Christ, not to the Roman Empire. It don't belong to them. They may think they've got me. They may think (laughs) I'm leading them to Christ. Romans are no different than anybody else. Once they get in touch with Jesus and see what he can do, they can change. They come to a cross, they pray. Amen. So maybe the emperor will do the same thing. So he's going to tell them about his relationship with Jesus Christ without shame. Paul is going to magnify Jesus. I am not here for the Roman Empire. I am here because I belong to Jesus Christ. What courage, what boldness, what honor. There's no shame in that. I'm standing up for Jesus. So Paul could confidently face his future and declare, God is going to take care of me. Amen. Number one. God is going to take care of me, whether I live or die. Because people are praying, the Spirit is moving, and I'm going to stand and, without dishonor, magnify the name of Jesus Christ boldly. Second thing that Paul stated was, God's will is my desire. God's will is my desire. Verse 21, for to me, to live, that's to me, to live is Christ, To me, to die is gain. Interesting play in the Greek there because Christos, Christ, sounds very familiar to the word for gain. We don't get that, but it doesn't rhyme in English. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. God's will is my desire. See, Paul is literally facing a life-or-death situation. Paul didn't see it as Caesar's decision. He didn't really see it as his own choice, although he's debating it back and forth, which he would prefer to do. But Paul saw it as God's decision. For either way, Paul felt it was a win-win. For to me, to live is Christ. I live for Christ. To die is gain. I go to Christ. So as he wrote this letter, Paul debates back and forth between the two outcomes of his trial. Which do I prefer, life or death? What if Caesar says, kill him? What if Caesar says, let him go? I think if you were on a death sentence in prison, waiting for your final trial, maybe you would kind of want to know, and in your mind you'd kind of play it back and forth. Well, if I died, my wife might cry. (laughs) Some of the people might miss me down there in Brazil, Indiana. But if I lived, then they'd say, man, wasn't he better when he was in prison? I don't know what people would say. I don't know what to do, and I'm being facetious about all the choices, because it depends. But you'd kind of think about it a little bit, wouldn't you? So we want to look at Paul's perspective on life, then we want to look at Paul's perspective on death here. Paul's perspective on life for Paul living meant what? Having a real relationship with Jesus Christ here on earth. That's what living was for me to live as Christ. If I live, I'm going to continue to serve Jesus. Ever since Jesus had knocked him off the horse on the road to Damascus, Paul's life was all about knowing Jesus, serving 
Jesus. That was his only purpose for living. What is your purpose for living? Dramatic pause. What is your purpose for living? Paul's. Well, I'll I'll share it with you in a minute. Just a minute. The advantage of staying alive on earth was that Paul would be able to produce more fruit for Christ. Verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from our labors. Yet what I choose, I cannot tell. Another advantage was that he would be able to help the Philippian Christians some more. Verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Because they were young Christians and he could teach them some more stuff. Paul saw his life only in terms of serving God more and helping people to Christ and making them stronger disciples to Christ. To live as Christ summed up Paul's whole life as a Christian. Listen to his words written later in this particular letter in chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. Paul had one passion. And it's summed up in the word Jesus. We're going to get to this passage later. We'll probably spend a year here. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the mark of the prize of the upper call. In Christ Jesus. You think I'm passionate? Whew. Paul was passionate about serving God. Our problem today is that Paul had a completely different cultural mindset than the average American Christian. The problem we have today is we are a product of our culture. We have been raised to live our lives so that we value all these other things instead of valuing Christ as number one. That's our culture. And so when we get saved, we just add another value. Jesus, he's a big value at the beginning, but he just kind of fades down into, because the routine of our culture is things, 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 right? That's our cultural value. That's good preaching. Our culture provides us with a different priority than Christ, a different passion than Christ, a different pull than Christ. And I'm not talking things are sin. I'm just talking that's the way we've been raised. What your house look like, what your cars look like, what, what your clothes look like, what, what your toys look like, how many toys do you have? 
I was a wicked parent. My girls didn't get cell phones until they started driving. <laughs> now they hand them out in kindergarten. I just figured if you're not driving, why do you need a phone? You don't have anybody to call. You're always with mom and dad. Or you're at school where you don't need a phone. Ooh, boy, that's good preaching. Or you're at church where you don't need a phone. Unless, of course, you're reading your Bible on your phone. Yeah, like that's happening. So for today's Christian, I'm just pausing here for a long pause. You know how I do. To live is Christ, right? No. For today's American Christian, to live is my work, my family, my entertainment, my sports, my shows, my cell phone, being successful, living comfortably, all my gadgets, all the latest, keeping up, knowing what's going on, because if I don't have the latest craze, if I don't know what the latest thing is doing and going and being, I'm not cool. Hey, they were doing it on the commercial for the car place. So it's still in. The lasso's been around a long time. So stirring the pot. Anyway, I mean, that's what it is. It may be easy to pay lip service to serving Christ, but for modern Christians, we don't have time to invest in serving God. Cultural priorities demand our attention first. Jesus gets an hour or two squeezed out of our cultural schedule each week, and that's only if we wake up in time, and that's only if we had nothing else to do, and that's more important. Then we can squeeze Jesus in. And some complain when the service gets too long and the preacher preaches too long because we have more important things to do than to spend time with God. After all, we've got to get to the restaurant before the everybody else in town. After all, the game starts at 1 o'clock. After all, it's covered bridge festival. Got to beat the traffic. After all, whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but there's always a reason why our culture is more important than spending time with God and God's Word. And then they wonder why Christians aren't passionate, and we wonder why others don't see the passion in us. I'm not even talking about sin, I'm just talking about legitimate stuff. Average person spends five hours a day on their cell phone. Average. No wonder they're not getting any work done at work. Paul's passion for Christ meant that he was willing to pour out his hours in ministry to other people, both saved and sinners. And it would require a radical shift in focus if American Christians were to adopt Paul's passion of living for Christ. It would be a radical change. And I know I am preaching the same thing but it's the same issue. Nobody has time to go all in because we've got so many other things that demand our time. Because if I miss my show this week, I won't know what happened. And if I miss that Facebook post, I won't know 372 people like what I put on there. Ooh, I'm so good. Everybody likes me. They're going, who are you? cute saying, I'll hit like. Right? Paul's passion for Christ. I will give my life. Different culture, different day. 
Paul's perspective on death. Again, our American culture has skewed our focus. Death is worse than our passion for life. For us, death is seen as a negative. We don't want to talk about it. We give death special treatment. We dress up bodies in their best clothes and put them in expensive caskets and have special buildings set aside for the visitation and the funeral service. And then we spend money on vaults and, and headstones and we bury people in special plots of land. We call them cemeteries. We have this whole culture that costs lots of money based on putting death in its own little compartment, separate it from life. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's the American culture. I mean, the Indians, they built this thing of wood and they stuck the body on there and set it on fire. <laughs> the Vikings put them on a ship, set it on fire, and just shipped it out to sea. But Americans, we have to pass by a casket. Oh, he looks so nice. He's dead. Oh, but he looks so nice. You're not breathing. That's a nice casket, by the way. Our society is full of people who will spend any amount of money to live just a few minutes longer. I've talked to you about cryogenics, but I just read something recently that this, this uh, family is suing the cryogenic department because instead of saving his entire body like they had wanted him to do, they only saved his head. Because saving the head is cheaper. Can you imagine these people when they get thawed out 50 years from now, or 100 years from now, when they have a cure for their disease? What on earth are they going to do if they even can come back alive? We will pay any kind of money to live a little longer. In fact, there's a whole industry geared on making money, helping people think that they are cheating death. I am sick and tired of cosmetic commercials that tell me the bags under my eyes can disappear for 10 minutes using this miraculous product. But if I have less bags, I will look younger. We apply cosmetic products. We have expensive surgeries to appear younger than we are. If you're new today, this is the way I preach. I'm sorry. I just kind of wander around on topics, but they get under your skin, don't they? We waste money on trying to look and, and, and look younger and look like we're not quite getting old when we know we're pushing the casket around with our toe every day, waiting to fall in the thing. We hit the tanning booths so we can have that healthy glow. Oh, you look so young, and your skin's so wrinkled, but it's brown. This is brown, and we're making doctors and pharmacists rich with our constant visits and multitudes of prescriptions because we want to look younger, feel younger, have that kick in your step. Woohoo! I need something for my uh, back. And you know I'm being a little facetious, but I am saying that we push this thing called death way off there like it doesn't exist in a special place called a funeral home which you only go and then you walk in and you speak little somber terms. Oh, how good you look, dear. And I just went through this with my own mom. So, you know, I know what it's all about. This preoccupation with preserving life at all costs marks a widespread fear and a denial in America of the reality of death. 
It is unhealthy to shelter ourselves from the reality that every person is born to make a brief impact on this world and then to die and go spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. That's the reality. You're only here a short time. But you're going to be there a long time. We just won't talk about death. I was on hospice as a chaplain and worked there for many, and going to this, we don't talk about death. Mama left the room, and what daddy want to talk about? Death. Because she wouldn't discuss it. She wouldn't let anybody discuss it. So she gets out of the room, I'm the chaplain from hospice, and what's he bring up immediately? And then what did she do when she came back in the room? Booted me out. We don't talk about death. It's a part of life. The guy's dying. He wants to talk about it. He wants to talk about eternity. What's heaven look like? Where do you go when you leave here? Kind of important. We don't want to face the real issue of facing eternity with or without God, even among Christians. Death is talked about as an escape from earthly pains and troubles, hardships and difficulties. Oh, she's at rest now. They just wanted another angel to sing in the choir in heaven. Oh, he's no longer in pain. Maybe. We've got it all down pat because it is our culture. And I'm not saying we've got to stop our culture. I'm saying we need to think about the reality of death. Paul thought about the reality of death. All these things may be acceptable in our culture, and we as Christians follow along, but you have to stop and ask yourself sometime, is life really better than death? Is it? For Paul had a different perspective on death. He wrote, for me to live is Christ, but to die is better. It's gain. It's a profit. Paul was so passionate about his relationship with Christ that he saw death as a means to get physically into Christ's presence so that he could have a deeper relationship, a more intimate fellowship with Jesus. In fact, Paul said in verse 23 that he would rather die than live because death was the better choice if he had to choose. And here we are hanging on to life for all its purposes, trying to look younger, trying to make ourselves be the young, sweet thing that we used to be when we were 22. But the thing is, we got to die one of these days, and you may look good in that casket, but did you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you did, you are better off dead to this world and alive in eternity with Jesus. For the Christian, there's no reason why we should hold them here one second past the time God wants them to go because they are immediately healed in the presence of God running around with new shoes and no makeup. I need to go on. Now that is shocking way to think and to say to our culture of entertainment and gadgets and all this kind of stuff. What does a relationship with Christ have to offer that all of our toys cannot satisfy? Our culture has taught us that the toys are what satisfies. The gadgets, the latest, the newest, the brightest, the fashion. Now what can all these toys offer us? What does God offer us? Who offers more? Who offers better? The only way you and I can understand Paul's passion is to become passionate about Jesus ourselves. Paul's not crazy. 
He just wakes up every morning saying, hello, God, how are you? What do you want me to do today? Oh, I'm chained to these guards. Okay. Help me to have a conversation today that will lead one of them to Christ. And oh, by the way, help those Philippian Christians over there that are struggling. And be with Timothy as he's down at Crete. Be with Titus over there, Troas. Be, be with Apollos. Help Stephen. Nope, he's dead. I was there when he died. See, the only way we're going to understand the passion that Paul writes with and he lives with is if we become passionate about Jesus ourselves. To become passionate about Jesus means you need, to, you need to start praying. You need to start reading the Bible. You need to get into the Word. You need to put your trinkets and toys aside for an hour a day or five minutes a day or ten minutes, wherever you're at, and start there and spend some time getting in with Jesus and making him your best friend. Don't you want to be passionate about Jesus? Paul knew he was facing death. God had a choice to make about Paul's immediate future. Paul wanted God to choose the far better option, which was death. That would be better. But God's will was Paul's desire. Either way, God directed. And that led to Paul's final statement. God has more work for me to do. And being confident of this, verse 25, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and join faith, rejoicing, and so on, maybe a more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. See, Paul debated back and forth in his mind, but then concluded that God would want him to continue his ministry. The Christians at Philippi needed his leadership, and Paul was confident that God was going to give him a few more years and a fourth missionary journey to do some of the things that God had laid on his heart that he needed to do. Now, there's no concrete biblical evidence that this ever took place. There's hints. Paul's wishful thinking that he wrote in different letters and even the end of Acts when he's going to prison, but we just, we really don't know. It wasn't written out for us. It wasn't important that it did so. Historians think that Paul got to make that fourth trip, that he did get to go to Spain and revisit these churches, including Philippi. There's many places he wrote about. But Paul had this passion to share Jesus everywhere he went. If he was in prison for two years, he'd share Jesus there. But if he got out, he was going to go and start more churches and help establish those that were already started. And his passion provides a lesson for us to learn. Because Paul felt like if he died, it would be the better thing. Because he would go and get to be in the presence of Jesus, his best friend. But Paul was confident that God was going to leave him here a little longer on earth. Because God had more work for him to do. God had more work for him to do. The lesson is this. If we are alive on earth and we are a Christian, we have more work to do for Jesus. Oh, that's just Paul. He was just a fanatic. Okay, you don't have to be like Paul and charge all the way around Clay County, leading people to Christ, starting churches, etc. But who are we influencing for Jesus in our own way, with our own personality? Who are we praying for to come to Jesus? Because if we are still alive, God has work for us to do. Life of the Christian is more than being comfortable. Sitting in a rocking chair, going out to eat, hanging out with Christian people. That's part of it. Spoiling your grandkids, or in some cases, great-grandkids. That might be part of life for a Christian. But there's also a part that there's work to be done in the kingdom 
And God has no hands but ours, and no feet but ours, no mouth but ours, no body but ours, to get this out to one more person. Life means that every day a Christian wakes up and says to God, what do you want me to do for you today? Culture demands that we wake up and say, oh, what's five things that i got to do today to keep up with the Joneses? Jesus wants us to ask, what can I do today for the kingdom? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. Matthew 6, 33, Sermon on the Mount. Culture has it backwards. Seek for the latest gadget, and your life will be complete. Is it complete? No, because there's always another gadget. I just bought an iPhone 8. Now they want me to trade it in for an iPhone 10. They'll give me a $300 discount, but I haven't paid off the $800 for the first one. Is that really what a life's all about? You all kept making fun of me and my flip phone, so I finally got a phone. <laughs> and it's trying to take up my time, so I on purpose leave it. You, newsflash. I don't even carry it when I mow the lawn. And I don't even carry it when I work out. Debbie was trying to get a hold of me yesterday. My phone was inside. I was mowing the lawn. I don't care about my cell phone 24-7. Newsflash, most of the time it doesn't even sit by my bed. So every night in the middle of the night goes bing and I get, whoa. I'm not going to let it control my life. I'm not going to let this culture control my life. Because Jesus is more important than the culture. Amen. But you who are really savvy with your electronics, you have ways to get Jesus out on your electronics. Use it! So if we are alive, the lesson is God has work for us to do. Life means that every day you wake up and ask God, what do you want for me to do for you today? That's the way Paul lived. That is the way God wants you to live. The important thing that you will do for God is to point someone to Jesus. That's the most important thing you will do with your life. It's not marrying, it's not having kids, it's not working and making big money, and it's not buying a fancy house or driving the latest car, it's not having all the latest gadgets. The most important thing that you're going to do with your life is if you lead someone to Jesus Christ. That will be the most important thing that your life will have as its legacy, that someone can come by your casket. Oh, she looks so good. Rest in peace. Or they can say, you know what? This woman led me to Jesus Christ. Woo! Wow. That would be the most important thing we could say. Here is today's good news. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That life and death are wonderful options for Christians. That is good news. Be passionate about serving Jesus every day and rejoice when it is your time to see Jesus face to face. Because Christ is the beginning. He's the living of life. He's the end of life. Christ is the inspiration of life. Christ gives us the task 
for life. Christ gives us the strength to live life. Christ is the reward at the end of life. It's your breath in my lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. Amen? It's Jesus. Christ is the only reason to live. The second piece of good news is that as long as you and I are alive on earth, we have more work to accomplish for Jesus. The good news is God's not finished with you yet. You get to help build the kingdom of God. You can still pray. You can still live. You can show people the way. You can share Jesus. That's good news. That's very good news. And so we come to the point where we talk about family altar time. Where people come and respond to God's good news and decide to step up and take the next step in their walk of faith with Christ. They can pray about whatever they want to pray about. Lord Jesus, allow your spirit to move today. Speak to us. Let your spirit come into our midst. Speak to our hearts. We need you, Jesus. We need you. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we have of talking to you this morning. The most important thing we're going to do today is talk to Jesus. Because Lord, you fill us up so that when we can go out and talk to others, change us so we can be change agents in our world. Lord, we just want to tell you we love you. We know that strength comes from you. We know that life comes from you. We know that you are the way in which we should walk. You are the truth in which we should live by. And you are the life that comes within and changes us. As we breathe in Christ, we breathe out Christ to the world. And so today, Lord, we've gotten closer to you. And today, Lord, we will be better disciples. And Lord, you know the issues that are around us. And we want to pray for each other, that we'll be strong Christians. And we want to pray for our sinner friends, that they would come to know Jesus. And we want to pray for our sick friends, that they would be healed, either here or in eternity. But we also want to pray, Lord, today for sin. We want to pray for issues that are just destroying society. We're going to pray for our leaders, from those in Washington, D.C., to those in Indianapolis, and those right here in Clay County and in Brazil. We want to pray for our leaders, that they would bring us all in the right direction, closer to God. Stop the sin, Lord. Stop the selfishness. Break down the walls. Release people from chains. Help addictions to be stopped. We pray, Lord, that our culture will change to be a God-centered culture and less goal-centered. And Help us, Lord, to begin to think about others more than we think about ourselves and think about Jesus most of all. Let, your, let this mind be in us, which was in Christ Jesus. When we get to chapter 2. And so, Lord, here it is. Your people waiting before you. Thank you for your presence. <laughs> Thank you for your presence today. We honor you. We glorify you. And the best thing we can do to glorify you is to go out and tell somebody else. 
what Jesus has done in our lives. Some of us in our group have spouses that don't know Jesus. Some of us have children that don't know Jesus. Some of us have parents that don't know Jesus. Lord, help us to be faithful. We have friends. And so, Lord, we want to pray about our friends because if they're really our friends, we would pray about them. Thank you for our time together. And Lord, you have been so good. We just want to worship you for a couple of songs here and give you praise and let you know that you are God and we love you and that you deserve everything that we have. So be in our praise service today, the board meeting that's coming up, the announcements, all the different things, activities. That's all important, but Lord, we just want to thank you for being the most important thing today. In Jesus' name.